Um, okay. All right. Our topic for tonight is Herbert Zucker's The Butcher of Latvia. So we're back to discussing a Mossad operation involving an ex-Nazi. But this story is not like the Eichmann story, where the goal was to extract someone alive in a complicated mission and bring them back for trial in Israel. Rather, the goal, as stated from the beginning, was to kill someone. Uh, And let me explain why it is that the intent was to commit uh, an assassination. So we begin in September of 1964. And a man by the name of Anton Kunzel, a fake name, uh, this man is a fake identity created by a Mossad agent in Rotterdam. He was supposedly, as his cover story indicated, an Austrian businessman. And he has a new mustache, a real mustache, but new, but he grew for the part. And he wore unnecessarily thick eyeglasses that were a real prescription because he purposely failed the eye exam. Uh, with his Austrian passport, this Anton Kunzel uh, secured a tourist visa to go to Brazil and bought plane tickets for Rio de Janeiro. From there, he would go to Sao Paulo, and he stayed in the best hotels, ate at the most expensive restaurants, gave generous tips, and on the whole gave the impression that he was a successful businessman. His intent was to develop connections with the tourist industry and give the impression that he wanted to get involved in tourism in Brazil, that he was a European businessman who could invest real capital, good capital in Brazilian tourism. His Mossad name was Yitzhak Sarid, not Yassi Sarid, Yitzhak Sarid, but his real name was Yaakov Meidat, uh, and that his real name was not known to those outside the Mossad for a long time until close to his death. Uh, He died a number of years ago. Now, he was the classic anonymous-looking Western European businessman type, the perfect spy, the kind of person you would see in an airport and not think twice about this individual. You figure they're traveling on business. You would never remember the details of what he looked like. He was blah, anonymous, plain. Nothing stood out about him. Why was he sent on the, a mission? Well, the answer is that the German and the Austrian governments were contemplating a statute of limitations on the prosecution of Nazi war criminals. It had been 20 years almost since the end of the war, and the Germans wanted to turn the page and move on from its ugly past. In the case of Austria, a guy like Waldheim eventually became the head of the country. And in Germany, in West Germany, although the state had been supposedly been denazified, that never really happened in full. Even under Adenauer, who was a friend, um, uh, one second, one second, let me make myself the pen. Okay. Am I now the speaker for everyone? One second. Uh, am, am I, am I the, the speaker now? Good. Fine. Okay, so even under Adenauer, there were many uh, Nazis who had fairly high ranks in government. And 
Israel's perspective was, at least under Ben-Gurion, we would like to believe in a new Germany, a Germany which is our ally, which will supply us with money and military hardware and our fight against the Arabs. Uh, the Germans were very interested in also being perceived as you know, a friend of the Jews, having turned the page, put the past behind us. But that's not good. Not good from a Jewish perspective. And after the Eichmann trial of 61, many argued, okay, you had your trial. That chapter in world history is over. And we can move on. But people were starting to forget. And forgetting is bad. So Israel decided it will take preemptive action to prevent the passage of this statute of limitations law. And the best way to do that is to make noise and make news. What's the biggest newsmaker? You kill someone. All right? Just kill some famous ex-Nazi. And that will reinvigorate the, the hunt for Nazis and prevent any uh, statute of limitations. So who are they going to kill? Who's out there? Well, Mengele was still out there. And if you recall, Isser Harel in the Eichmann episode had wanted to try to find Mengele and bring both of them back on the same LL plane in May of 1960. He he was unable to do so for practical reasons and was convinced by other members of the of the team that he was nuts for even attempting it because he would he would potentially ruin the Eichmann operation. Okay, so Mengele was still out there. And there were others of some renown who had never been found. But uh, Herbert Zuckers was known. They knew where he was. And Zuckers was a real criminal with blood on his hands. So Mayor Amit, the head of the Mossad, gave the green light to have Zuckers killed. Anton Kunzel, or Yaakov Meidad, had motivation. His parents were killed in the Shoah. His mother was killed at Auschwitz. His father at Theresienstadt. Kunzel himself was born in Germany and spoke fluent German. He was part of the Eichmann capture too. Zuckers, unlike Eichmann, was not a desk murderer. Eichmann may have never even killed anybody with his own hands. Eichmann was a paper pusher and an orchestrator of the big picture final solution. Zuckers was a, was a goon who really killed people barehanded. Kunzel insisted on going alone. He didn't want to have any partners in the first phase of the operation. But a single mistake could cost him his life. Why kill Zuckers uh, rather than try to bring him to trial? The answer is that the goal was to make all the surviving Nazis fear for their lives. Make them quake in their boots, even if you never capture them. Brazil was fiercely anti-communist. Um, the well, uh, Norman's asking about Werner von Braun. Well, he had protection by the Americans, so that wasn't a realistic op- uh, option. Um, you know, you don't mess with the United States. So Brazil was fiercely anti-communist, and they turned a blind eye to the presence of many Nazis in their territory. They knew it, didn't bother them, no moral scruples, anti-communist Nazis are welcome. But who was Zuckers? Herbert Zuckers became famous in the 1930s for being the uh, the Charles Lindbergh of Europe, basically. He flew nonstop from Latvia to Gambia in Africa in a plane that he built with his own two hands. 
So he's uh, like uh, part Wright Brothers, part Lindbergh. He was a Latvian national hero. And he was a right-wing Latvian nationalist. Before the war, supposedly, he traveled to Palestine. In that regard, his parallels with Eichmann. Eichmann also traveled to Palestine. And supposedly, Sukkos had said a few nice things about Jews before the war. And at one point in time, might have even been an ally of Latvian Jewry. However, all this changes with the Soviet invasion of Latvia. And then the Nazi invasion of the Soviet Union. Let me explain. Lithuania, Latvia, Estonia are independent republics during the interwar period. They did not exist as independent countries before World War I. They were part of Tsarist Russia. Then after the Treaty of Versailles, Paris Peace Accords, uh, all these Eastern European countries emerge and get their independence. And then as a result of the Molotov and Ribbentrop Pact of August 23rd, 1939, Poland and the Baltics are divided up between Germany and the Soviet Union. Germany gets Western Poland, and the Soviet Union gets Eastern Third of Poland plus the uh, the Baltics. So when, when the Soviets took over in Latvia, and in Lithuania for that matter, the question is, are the Jews happy or not? The Latvian nationalists are, of course, very upset. They lost their freedom to some Bolshevik uh, commies. But the Jews, some of whom were communists and therefore had an affinity for the Soviet Union, others who just were appreciative that they're not under Nazi control and are happy to be under Soviet control, because maybe they think their lives will be spared, were seen as too happy about the Soviet takeover. And therefore, when when uh, Operation Barbarossa when the Nazis invade the Soviet Union in June of 1941, the, all the, the, the nationalists of these various countries, Eastern, Central, Central East European countries, are now going to uh, take it out against the Jews. Some of them were innately anti-Semitic anyway, you know, viciously anti-Semitic, but also they hated the Jews for cozying up to the Soviets. So Zuckers falls into that category. He's a Latvian nationalist, who's happy with the German invasion because it throws off the yoke of Soviet domination. And the yoke of Soviet domination was associated with the Jews. So now the Jews have to suffer and he's going to make them suffer. So uh, Sukkos turned against the Jews and became a, a deputy leader of the Latvian auxiliary force carrying out Nazi atrocities. He burned to death 300 Jews alive in the Riga synagogue, herded them into synagogue, set the building on fire. Sukkers took 30,000 Jews of the Riga ghetto and shot many of them in the Rumbuli forest. Uh, if you've read um, When They Come For Us, We'll Be Gone, which is the story of uh, so- Soviet Jewry movement. So that book begins with Yosef Mendelovich and his friends building the memorial in the Rumbuli forest to those who were killed in 1941. So if those of you who might have read that book, we discussed that book in a previous lecture. The Rumbuli Forest was the, where the uh, Riga Jews went to die. And Zuckers killed babies in front of their mothers. He drowned 1,200 Jews in Kaldiga Lake. Horrible, horrible, horrible stuff. Violence, uh, grotesque violence out of Zuckers. 
When the war was over, Sukers escaped to France and posed as a farmer. He then made it to Rio. And he had an interesting plan for him, for himself, to escape prosecution on account of his crimes. He took a Jewess with him as an insurance policy. Almost like a hostage, except she wasn't a hostage. Miriam Keitzner was this Jewess who was willing to say nice things about Sukkers that he saved her from death. In other words, there were Nazi criminals or ethnics, non-German ethnics who functioned as Nazi criminals who killed a lot of Jews, but who actually did save one or two people or maybe even more than that. And that one or two people, however, the, the few handful that they saved after the war were willing to say nice things that so-and-so saved my life. He killed a thousand others, but he saved my life. So I'll say nice things about um, the Jews of Rio, of Rio initially regarded Sukkers as the savior of Riga because, hey, this Jewish says that he saved their life. But then one night he got drunk. And as the Talmud says, how do we know a person? Bekiso, Bekoso, Vakaso. With their, with their wallet, with their cup, and with their anger. So when you're drunk, all the secrets come out. The MS comes pouring out. And what did he say? He referred to the Jews as pigs and scum. So now they know he's not an Ohev Yisrael. He's a Shone Yisrael, a hater of the Jews. Um, the Jews did, did their own research. They investigated a little further. And they were horrified by what they found out. Now, remember, in the early 1960s, it's not as though there was this vast library of Holocaust literature that people were proficient in and they knew who were the criminals and who were the good guys. The war had only ended 17, 18 years earlier, and there wasn't that much historical writing yet. And it was, it was certainly possible for someone who was not a, as famous as Hitler, Himmler, and Eichmann you know, to slip through the cracks and people not know what their true story was. But if you did a little further investigation, maybe then you found out the Emmys. Okay, so the Jews of Rio now realize that Herbert Zuckers is the devil. Uh, Zuckers ditches uh, his Jewish friend, and then he brings over his wife and three sons, and they move to a different neighborhood in Rio, away from the Jewish community. He becomes the owner of an air taxi company. He takes people on flights over the water, over this, over the city. You know, he's a pilot. He's a famous pilot at that. And he go goes into the tourism industry, giving people uh, uh, air taxi. The Jews found him again. They trashed his office. And he fled to Sao Paulo. Now he has to run to a different city. After the Eichmann capture, Sukkers got nervous that he would be next for uh, being accosted or being kidnapped. And so he asked the Brazilian police for protection, and it was granted. Now, he bribed them, but it was granted because they had no problem uh, showing kindness to a Nazi. His, uh, he built a house that was very fortress-like because he thought, they're coming for me. And he bribed the security services, you got you to help me out here. If, I, if you see any threats to my life, let me know. He was afraid of Jewish Avengers. Not necessarily even the Mossad or Israeli operatives, just Jewish Avengers, even vigilante Avengers, not working for a government. Uh, he also made a list of potential enemies. He had a little book, a little black notebook. And in this black notebook, 
he listed you know, who are the people who could cause him trouble. And um, at the top of that list were Brazilian Jewish politicians who he thought would remove his p- police protection, try to get him deported, whatever it might be. Okay. Zucker's business was not very successful. Okay. I mean, he was a, he was a, 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 a low-level uh, tourist functionary. He was not making money hand over fist. Why does that matter? Because in South America, all these ex-Nazis who were trying to live out their days and retain their freedom, they didn't just want their freedom. They also wanted to be wealthy and live an opulent life. Some of them had lived very well at Jewish expense during the war. And so, you know, in the the case of Eichmann, we, we recall, he was living uh, like a schnook, like a nobody. He was living in a house without electricity and running water for a while. And he didn't like that. He was disgruntled by, by the fact that he was poor, as opposed to Mangler, who was rich, and others who were rich. So Zuckers, he's, he's greedy. And he would like to inc- improve his financial position. And this greed is something that Anton Kunzel, the Mossad spy, is going to tap into as he tries to win over Zuckers' confidence. So Kunzel spends several days in Rio developing connections in the tourism industry, and then he goes to Sao Paulo. And he meets Zuckers by the water, by the boat, and asks him for a flight around the neighborhood. So he's a paying customer. Zuckers, uh, Kunzel then proposes that he and Zuckers go into business together. So this is a serious opportunity. Kunzel looks like a prominent businessman, claiming to have a lot of capital at his disposal, wants to invest in South American tourism, and wants Sukers as a partner. So Sukers admits that, you know, people say I'm a war criminal. And why does Sukers say this? He wants to gauge Kunzel's reaction. Is Kunzel going to flinch and give away that he's a Jew or an Israeli. It's an interesting move. Direct honesty. Not to say my name is Ricardo Clement and I'm a, a, you know, an innocent man. Like, like, like if Eichmann were to say, I'm Adolf Eichmann. So Zuckers is saying, I'm, I'm Herbert Zuckers. They say I'm a war criminal. Kunzel's response is, who cares? I want to do business with you. We'll make some money together. Because Zuckers was a captain... Kunzel made himself a lieutenant, a lower rank. He didn't want to upstage his target. And Kunzel, the Mossad spy, in order to win over Zuckers, says, you know, I also fought for the for the uh for the fatherland, and I was injured on the Russian front. And he opens up his shirt and shows a scar on his chest, as though that were like a war injury. In fact, it was a surgery he had at Ikhilov Hospital in Tel Aviv for some you know, minor procedure. But he played it up as though it was a, a war injury. Now, Kunzel's playing the long game, the slow, safe, long game. He's not going to say, let's go into business tomorrow. We're going to investigate it. I have to see if you're reliable. You have to see if I'm reliable. Slowly, slowly, we'll develop a relationship. And so on September 12, 1964, Kunzel sends a message back to Paris, to Mossad headquarters there, in disappearing ink. It says, the fish has swallowed the bait. 
That's like the tuna is in the can or the eagle has landed, you know, classic uh, code, coded language. Um, which means, basically, I'm, I'm successful thus far. That Sukkos is interested in doing business with me and things are moving according to plan. Now, Sukkos himself also wrote something that very night. He took out his black notebook where he had his list of potential enemies. And at the very top of that list, whose name did he put down? Anton Kunzel. In other words, he's suspicious of this guy. Yes, he wants to do business and he wants to make money because he's greedy and thinks this is an opportunity. But in the back of his mind and even in the front of his mind, he thinks this guy may not really be an Austrian businessman after all. He could be a dirty Jew or some sort of Israeli agent looking to kill me. And he was right. Okay. So Kunzel came back a week later and had dinner at Zucker's home. It was a risky move. Because after all, Zucker's could have killed him right there and no one would have known. Zucker's showed him his war medals, 15 war medals, and showed him a closet full of guns, all with Brazilian permits. So here this ex-Nazi had a closet full of guns and the Brazilian government was okay with it. And he said, quote, I know how to defend myself. Each man was trying to impress the other to show how dangerous and lethal he really could be. On the way back from dinner, Anton Kunzel bought a switchblade just in case he would need it. So next day, Sukers takes Kunzel out to a plantation, a long drive into the, to the forest, to a plantation. And what happens when two guys go on a long drive together? What do they have to do? Go to the bathroom. Okay? So they stop along the side of the road to urinate. And... Kunzel, or Yaakov Medad, really, is nervous. What if the guy peeks and looks what I'm doing and he sees I'm circumcised? Uh, I, 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 it's a dead giveaway. I'll be finished. I'll be doomed. So he came up with an idea. Tell him in case the guy asks or in case the guy looks, to say I, I had gonorrhea in a military brothel on the Russian front and the, 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 uh, the doctors had to do an emergency circumcision to heal me. That was his story that he was going to go with. According to the story as it is retold, it never came to that because Sukkers wasn't peaking. Okay. They had a shooting competition at the plantation. Remember, Sukkers was a, was a war hero and was trying to impress his Austrian businessman friend. So they have a shooting competition with a target. And from 50 yards away, whatever it is, uh, Sukkers, impressive, gets all the bullets within a 10 millimeter a uh, 10 centimeter uh, uh, radius. However, then Anton Kunzel, Yaakov Medad goes, and he gets it within three centimeters. So the, the Israeli slash Austrian businessman upstaged his would-be business partner. Kunzel was a real marksman. Why? Because he had been a, a, a sniper serving the British army in World War II. You know, many uh, Palestinian Jews in the 1940s, between 42 and 44, served in the British Army, about 26,000 Jews did. So he was one of them, and he was a, an excellent shot. Now, Kunzel could have killed Sukkers right there. If the goal of this whole Mossad operation was to kill the butcher of Latvia, it could have happened right there in the forest. Why didn't Anton Kunzel, Yaakov Medad, pull the trigger and kill the guy? The answer is because he could have gotten caught and hanged. There was a death penalty in Brazil for murder. 
and he'd have no cover story of I'm an agent working for the Israelis, he simply would have been executed. And so he didn't do it. Then, over the next few days, Anton Kunzel takes Herbert Zucker's to the nightlife uh, in the city, shows him to the, you know, the bars, the clubs, uh, let him have a good time and spend a lot of money on the clubs just to further prove that he's a real Austrian businessman with a lot of money. But Zucker's was, was paranoid and didn't like going out dancing and clubbing and dining. He, 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 was, he didn't want to have a public profile. So at the end, Kunzel says, listen, we have many business opportunities together, but I have to go back to Europe. And let me think about what I want to do with you, and I'll send you a message. So Zucker sees this as a ticket to the high life. All right, he's going to wait for his buddy, Anton, to uh, to respond. So three weeks after their first meeting, Hunzel left for Europe. And in Paris, at the Mossad safe house, they discuss where they're going to kill Herbert Zuckers. Where they're going to do it. And they decide Uruguay rather than Brazil. Why? Three reasons. The first, Uruguay was a more democratic country than Brazil. So the legal system will be fa- more fair and less likely to just hang a Jew in um, in Uruguay as opposed to Brazil. So a more, a, more, a more democratic, honest system of justice. The second reason is Uruguay didn't have a death penalty. So even if he was caught and he was prosecuted and the prosecution was real and he was convicted, it would only be a prison sentence, not death. Brazil had the death penalty. And the last reason was because Uruguay only had a small Jewish community, whereas Brazil had a large Jewish community that could be subject to attacks by German and neo-Nazi groups if it would have found out that Israelis or Jews kidnapped and killed Herbert Zuckers, the butcher of Latvia. So they decide we're going to do it in Uruguay. And the intention was to capture him alive, read to him uh, 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 account of uh, 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 a charge against him and then execute him on the spot. But that before he was a shot in the head, he would be read a charge of why they're killing him, that he should know who it is who's getting, who's doing him in and why they're doing so. So a hit team of five men arrived in Montevideo in February of 1965. Who are these five men? Yaski Yariv, Zev Amit, a cousin of Mayor Amit, the head of the Mossad, Anton Kunzel, Aryeh Cohen, and Eliezer Sudit. Uh, Sudit had a legitimate Austrian passport in the name of Oswald Tausig. So that name is relevant because eventually they would realize that that guy was part of the hit team and the, 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 the Uruguayan police would start looking for this guy. They also bought a large trunk like the kind of which you would go to sleepaway camp back in the old days. Nowadays, nobody takes a trunk to sleepaway camp. They have the, the big uh, duffel bags. But in the old days, they had the big black trunk. So they bought a black trunk. And what's it for? Of course, they're going to put the dead body in there. Okay. Now, they had a hard time finding a, a, a suitable property on which to kill Herbert Zuckers. If you recall, this was also an issue back in, uh, in, in, uh, in Argentina, in Buenos Aires, in the Eichmann hit, you've got to find properties that can serve as safe houses, uh, sometimes more than one. In the case of Eichmann, they had three properties that they were they were renting out. 
In Sukkos's case, there was only one property, but they needed to be in an area that looked plausible as office space, because that was the excuse they were taking them to see office space, but yet uh, removed enough from the neighbors that if there was a tussle and a shots fired, that nobody would hear anything and call the cops. So in the end, they found a, a, a home that they settled on, but the downside was there was construction going on next door. So there were construction workers not too far away as all this was going to happen and come to a, to a, to a head. All right. Now, Kunzel sent a telegram to Zuckers to meet in Montevideo for business in late February of 1965. Zuckers is suspicious. On February 15th, he went to the Brazilian police to ask for advice. And they told him in no uncertain terms, don't go. Don't go. If you go, we can't protect you. Here in Brazil, we can watch out for you. And if anybody's trying to harm you, we can inter intervene. But if you leave the country, you're on your own. So despite the Brazilian police attempting to save an ex-Nazi from his own stupidity and protect him and keep him alive, Sukkot decided, you know what, I'm going to go anyway, despite whatever they told me. And he said to them, I'm not afraid. I always carry a gun. How about that? I'm not afraid. I always carry a gun. Okay, so Kunzel helped Zuckers get a Brazilian passport because up until that time he didn't have one. He had entered Brazil kind of below the radar as a Nazi fugitive and never left the country. So he didn't even have a passport. He needed a passport now to go to, to, to Montevideo. And so Kunzel was able to help him get that passport by giving him background letters as a business associate. So, okay, they really are business partners, and he's one guy for the other guy is writing uh, background re reference letters. Kunzel meets Zuckers at the Sao Paulo airport, and the, the meeting doesn't go very well. What happened? Kunzel is getting off a plane on the tarmac, and Zuckers is waiting for him. And Zuckers has a, a video camera, one of the 1960s-style video cameras, and is taking a video footage of Kunzel getting off the airplane. Now, why is he doing that? Because, remember, in the back of his mind and in the front of his mind, he doesn't really trust this guy. This guy could be a Jew, could be an Avenger, whatever it is. I want there to be photographic and videographic evidence of who this guy is. So, as soon as Kunzel, Yaakov Meidad, sees that he's being... Uh, taped, he's being uh, uh, photographed, he quickly waves his, his hands in front of his face to try to obscure his face from the camera and tells Sukers, put that away, put that away, what are you doing? What are you doing? All right. Now, Kunzel then asks Sukers, so I sent you the background letters, I gave you all the paperwork that you needed to get a passport and a visa, did you get your papers in order and are you ready to travel? And Sukkers said, no, I didn't. So Kunzel starts screaming at the guy and says, I'm your boss and I told you what to do. When you dropped the ball, you failed. He starts barking orders at this guy. But remember, Kunzel, the Mossad agent, is trying to ultimately kill Herbert Sukkers. And so in their earlier encounters, he had to win him over with kindness and promises of, of business and you know friendship. But now that the relationship has already been developed, 
but Sookers is not getting the job done. So Kunzel feels now's my chance to prove that I really am an angry business partner, angry with him about how he didn't follow through the instructions. So the best course of action is to yell and scream at the guy and say, you fool, you idiot, I'm your boss. What are you doing? Okay. Now, fine. Sookers will get his paperwork and he's going to be ready to travel to Montevideo. Before leaving for Montevideo, Sookers gives his wife the 8mm uh, footage of Kunzel and says, if anything goes wrong, it was this guy. And those photos were later published. You can go on Google right now while I'm still talking and look up Anton Kunzel, Herbert Sookers, and see pictures of of, of Kunzel, of Maydad, at the airport sort of waving off the camera. All right. Well, they go to Montevideo, and they stay in a very, very expensive hotel. And Sukers is nervous because, you know, he thinks this is a business opportunity, but it might actually be his death, and ultimately will be. So on February 23rd, they go around looking for office space, office space. The goal is to find some kind of a rental property where they could set up shop, a business, uh, and start developing uh, tourism uh, industries in Uruguay. So they're going to go from one property to another. And eventually, the last property they're going to see for the day is the safe house where the murder is going to take place. How how does the hit team know that everything is in order and that Kunzel, Maidad, actually is going to successfully bring Stukers to the rendezvous point? The answer is that Kunzel deliberately ran out of gas uh, at a certain part of the neighborhood and was able to roll into the gas station on the last fumes of the tank and fill up the tank. And while he's filling up the tank, there was a sort of a thumbs up or a thumbs down to a car parked on the other side of the gas station that was the signal that we're ready to move forward. You know, everybody should be in place. Okay. They get to the final property where they want to check it out. And Anton Kunzel decides that in order to be convincing, he can't hesitate. He well, he turns off the engine. He was the driver. He gets out of the car, slams the door shut, and without even looking behind him to see whether Tsukers is following him out of the car, he walks down the pathway towards the front door of the house. Had Tsukers not been following him, that would have been a sign that Tsukers is on to this whole plan and is going to either run away or try to fight back. But if he does follow, then okay, we got him. As it turns out, Sookers does follow and doesn't appear to know that anything is up. Kunzel slams the door behind Sookers and lo and behold, there are four other men in the room all in their underwear. Why are they in their underwear? Because of an expectation of a very violent and bloody fight and a desire not to get street clothes stained with Sukkers' blood. So you know, everybody's in the gatkis because we want to avoid any evidence. Okay, well, a horrendous fight follows. Sukkers fought like a lion. Remember, he's no youngster. He's 65 years old. And 65, back in 1965, 
was not the 65 it is today. It was it was ancient back then. But he was a stalker. He was Chazak. And here, five guys from the Mossad, including fairly muscular fellows, are having trouble subduing him. Uh, he says in German, let me speak. And he tries to grab his gun. Remember, he says, I always carry a gun. Sukkers nearly bit off Yaski Yariv's finger. But for the rest of Yariv's life, he had an injured finger. Zev Amit, realizing that we're having trouble subduing this fellow, takes a hammer and hits Sukkers on the head with the hammer. Blood starts splurting out and Sukkers crumples to the floor and then Aryeh Cohen fires two gunshots to the head. Everyone was covered in blood. They needed to wash off uh, uh, the house and change their clothes with the hose from the garden. Okay. Then the, the plan had been to read the judgment against him and then execute him. But that had to be abandoned because in the tussle, they had to kill him outright without reading uh, whatever charges were against him. But they attached a note to his body. What did the note say? Quote, Considering the gravity of the crimes of which Herbert Zucker was accused, notably his personal responsibility in the murder of 30,000 men, women, and children, and considering the cruel, terrible cruelty shown by Herbert Zuckers in carrying out his crimes, we condemn the said Zuckers to death. The accused was executed on February 23rd, 1965, by those who will never forget. So notice that Israeli complicity in this is not stated outright. Was there an attempt? subsequently to sort of conceal the fact that this was a Mossad operation? Yes, but it didn't, it hardly worked. Everybody knew the truth. At, at, at most, you could say that maybe this was not a Mossad hit team, but rather a bunch of Jewish Avengers just working with, 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 the, with the wink and nod of the Israelis. But let's just, everyone assumed Jews killed Sukkers, and that's that. The workmen, the construction workers in the house next door heard nothing. That's good, because if they heard something, the police might have been called expeditiously, and there could have been arrests made. As it turned out, there were no arrests made. Each agent made his own different way back to Paris and Israel. So there, there were five of them. Nobody, No two guys traveled together. Five different pathways by train, uh, etc., to the airports. And everybody flies back to Europe and to Israel. Nobody got caught. This differs tremendously from the Eichmann story, where they had to stick around for 12 days holding the guy and then hardly, you know, had much of a chance to get out of the country if not for the LL plane. So this was a much easier escape. Now, what happens next? There were calls to the German news agencies saying that a Nazi, an ex-Nazi, had been executed. But these calls were ignored. Why were they ignored? Because the German reporters thought it was a prank. They didn't take it seriously. They thought it wasn't real. But the Zucker's family was getting nervous. Remember, the husband said to the wife, if anything bad happens to me, this was the guy. 
Well, something bad happened. He didn't come home. And, you know, they, they, they knew there could be a problem. He could be dead. So a second round of Mossad calls to newspapers provided more details. And with these more details, the police were informed. On March 8th, 12 days after Zuckers died, the body of Herbert Zuckers was discovered. Bloated, vile, maggot-infested. I mean, you can imagine a body 12 days decomposition. It's not a pretty picture. But if, speaking of pictures, if you want to see it, you can go to Google Images and you can find it. It's there. The, 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 uh, the police photo of his corpse was, was released to the general public. So it's available on, on, on Google. Now, the police were interested in Anton Kunzel, who was known as the Smiling Austrian, because in the photos taken from the airport, the first photos of him were as a smiling Austrian businessman. They also were interested in Oswald Tausig, who was the, the name on the passport of one of the other members of the Mossad hit team. A few days later, um, there arrived at, at Zucker's home a letter in which Anton Kunzel tries to cover his tracks, in which he writes that, oh, listen, Herbert, my dear Herbert, there were people following us. You should be careful. I think that we're being watched. There, We have enemies, so on and so forth as though Klinzel himself was a real person and was not the killer. Nobody was fooled by this, you know, weak attempt at covering the tracks of the Mossad. What were the long-term, short-term and longer-term consequences of this? So in the short term, synagogues were attacked and some were burned down in Brazil and Uruguay. So the Mossad's concern about the backlash against Jewish communities was not just an idle concern, it was real, and it actually came to pass. But the main goal had been prevent the passage of legislation in European countries, and notably in Austria and Germany, regarding statute of limitations for the prosecution of Nazi war criminals. And such laws were not passed. Ultimately, those laws were scuttled. The bills died in committee, they, they were rejected in the, the various parliaments, and so those laws were never put on the books. Of what relevance is that? Well, there were a bunch of other trials after 1965 of ex-Nazis. The most famous, of course, in the later years, was that of Ivan Demyanyuk, John Demyanyuk, Ivan the Terrible. Uh, you know, this the, the course this year that we're learning here is about Israel's clandestine activities. So, you know, Mossad operations, Shibet operations, we're not going to spend a session on Ivan the Terrible. However, I'm very tempted if we do next year a course that is more Holocaust-oriented, I will, uh, God willing, spend a, at least one session, if not more, on the Demyanyuk case. And you can watch the Netflix documentary if you're interested in that. It's a five-part series. It's a very good series. Okay, so the police look for Kunzel, Interpol is uh, given uh, information and puts out an all-points bulletin for you know, international police forces to be looking for Anton Kunzel. But Kunzel ceased to exist. He went back to Israel, took off his fake glasses, his fake mustache, and went back to being Mr. Sarid, the Mossad employee, or Medad, the real Israeli, and eventually retired from the service and uh, died a couple of years ago. 
So Kunzel was a phantom. He didn't really exist. Now, the Mossad admitted the truth 20, 20 years later. In the 1980s, the Mossad acknowledged, yes, we were the people, the organization behind the, the, the death of Herbert Zuckers, and we did it because he, he deserved it, that he was a horrible man, the butcher of thousands of Jews of Latvia, and he had it coming. All right. That said, what about the Zuckers family? You know, it's one thing to admit to a violent act that takes place in a Western country. If everybody is moda ala emis, admits the truth, that the target was deserving of what happened. But what happens if the relatives of the target say, you got an innocent man? You know, he was no no Russia. He was a tzaddik. He was our, our beloved daddy. So this is a, a question that emerges with the prosecution and execution, for that matter, of every high-ranking Nazi. What does the family say after the fact? And in some instances, you know, they defend their daddy or their granddaddy. He was a tzaddik. He was others. Uh, no, no, he was a real jerk, and he was a real uh, uh, war criminal who deserved what coming. But Zucker's family denied that Herbert Zucker's ever committed war crimes. That whatever he did was kosher and above board, and that the his death was an illegitimate act of violence by the Israeli state, and that the 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 uh, participants themselves deserve to be prosecuted to the fullest extent of the law. And maybe even executed. So that's the uh, you know the family's perspective and uh, about what happened. Now, just to to sum up a, a few words about the Tsukers case, you know the Jews of Western of, of Eastern Poland, of the Baltic states, of the Ukraine, the deaths of, of so many of them during the Shoah were the result of a combination of Nazi war efforts, German war efforts, and local anti-Semitism, in which the local population was not just complicit, but sometimes the main actors or drivers in the deaths of thousands of Jews. And the challenge in prosecuting the perpetrators of those crimes is that unlike in Germany, where post-1945 Germany has some interest in cooperating with the, you know, the, 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 the winning powers of the war in making an example of the worst Nazis and killing them, these other ethnic groups in Europe who lost their independence and had anti-Semitic sentiments anyway they're not interested in emphasizing the guilt that their ethnic group bears. So Poland doesn't like to talk about Polish complicity in the Holocaust. The Lithuanians don't like to talk about Lithuanian complicity. The Latvians, the Latvian complicity. The Ukrainians, the same. The the, the impetus to prosecute the, the bad actors, it just isn't there. Which is why Israel's action in the case of the Butcher of Latvia was so significant. It wasn't going to happen otherwise. And a lot of these guys disappeared into South America where they were welcomed. So Zucker's death is uh, an, an example. It's emblematic of Israel's efforts to hold accountable the non-German uh, players in the Shoah. 
just like the Ivan the Terrible case would be, he's, he's, uh, he's Ukrainian, and that will cause a fissure between the Jewish community and the Ukrainian community. But, you know, something has to be done because those ethnic groups are not interested in prosecuting their own. Okay, now I'll take any questions. Let me allow you to unmute. Okay, you can unmute anybody. Yeah, you got to unmute yourself. Okay. Yeah. Hi, yeah. for you. Um, so I have a question. You said that in South America, because they were so anti-Soviet Union that they embraced the fascist kind of theology, yeah. and and they which the ex the Nazis brought with them. Yeah, and, and you said that the even the policeman who said to uh, Zucker that you know we can't protect you here. Uh, you know, and you're going to go out to another country. It's beyond our surveillance, etc. Yeah. My question is, it's hard for me to understand that this was the only reason why they were so hospitable to so many uh, Nazis. There must have been something else going on in that. Well, there, in, in, in each country, it's a different story. Whether we're talking about Argentina, uh, Brazil, Uruguay. Paraguay, each country had its own story, Chile. But the basic ideas are, number one, there's money involved. Okay, so some of these people came with wealth. Eichmann didn't. Okay, Zuckers didn't. But others did, and they lived very well. Okay, in all all the the Eichmann-related movies that were made in America over the, over the years, they always show the uh, the German club where the guys are riding horses and dining in you know on expensive foods and foods and fine wines. Uh, there there was there was an, a financial angle to all of it. These guys also saw business opportunities in South America that they didn't have in Europe. Also, the Catholic Church played an important role in funneling people. So the church, which was you know was still big in Austria and Italy and even in southern Germany is also big in South America. And so uh, birds of a feather stick together. So there's the Catholic angle. There's the money angle. There's also the fact that these countries in South America had existing Germanic, German-speaking communities before the war. And you could then blend in. It's not as though you, the, the ex-Nazi is coming to a totally Spanish-speaking society and they stick out like a sore thumb. There was an existing community, and they slip in, uh, under the radar. So, um, somebody like Mengele, who lived very well, I mean, nobody went after him? The Mossad did not go after him? There were there were several attempts at going after Mengele, that none of which ever uh, went past the earliest phases of an operation. And in the end, he died by drowning off the, off the coast, uh, in 1979. Um, so he lived a, a relatively long life. I think he was 68 when he died or thereabouts. Uh, and there was some question whether or not he was he was killed, whether he was drowned. Right. But all, all the better evidence suggests that he was not drowned, that he really had a heart attack in the water, natural causes. Rabbi? Yeah. Uh, the story began with extension of the statute of limitations in Germany. So I thought you might close the circle how that death affected the extension 
of the statute of limitations in Germany. So so the the, the statute of limitations was not a law. It was a proposed law that then was never passed. So that in Germany and Austria, it remained possible to prosecute war criminals years and years later, and these things did happen. Um, so, but you indicated that they were going to make a public killing after the uh, Eichmann capture to affect laws in Germany. Did it? Right. So, so, so what I'm saying is, the the proposed laws in Germany. Were, remain merely proposed. They never were passed. And and an argument to, to be made is that the killing of Zuckers played a significant role in making sure that, that those laws were never passed. America was 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 they were they were involved in anything? They have guys looking for them. America, the the, the U.S. Uh, government, you know, the OSS, had information about a lot of people but chose largely to do nothing about that for two reasons. One, for those who didn't move to the United States, who moved to other Western countries, let's say South American countries, so the United States was not especially interested in mishing around in somebody else's business. If the other countries accept these people, then whatever Israel does, Israel does, but we're not going to get involved. The, the American concern was more for those who seek to move, to immigrate to the United States, you know, do we want these people or not? And sometimes people who would not have qualified for admittance into the United States based upon an honest evaluation of their record were nonetheless admitted for one of two reasons. Either the record was deliberately falsified or... Even if it wasn't falsified, it was ignored since these people had scientific knowledge and were needed for the Cold War to fight the Soviets. So among the high-ranking scientists who were admitted to the United States, it was known that plenty of them were were bad people who had done horrible things during the war. But those could be ignored as a price to be paid for victory in the Cold War. In other cases, you know, they just people lied about their their, their, their past, like Demyanyuk. And there's a movie made made? Yeah, there's a five-part Netflix series. You can go watch it. It's called The Devil Next Door. Say it again? The what? The Devil? I think it's called The the Devil Next Door or something like that. Who puts it out? Netflix? Netflix, yeah. Yeah. The Devil Next Door. Yeah. Hmm. All right. With that note, we will stop for tonight. We'll continue in two weeks. Uh, I'm not sure what the topic will be in two weeks yet. I'm still working on it. It'll, it'll be we're we're in the the moving into the mid to late 1960s, so it probably will have to do something related to the Six Day War, uh, clandestine activities related to the war. All right, see you in two weeks. Take Thank care. You.